and it becomes a habitual thing and that the parent responds. And I, I tell the parents like, you're accommodating every time that they come, you trying to quell your own anxiousness about, well, okay, let me solve that now. Now, broadly, in terms of just responding about anxiousness, um, I, I do try to tell parents that they should create an environment where their son, daughter can regularly know that they're going to engage in some kind of conversation about emotions, feelings, and that if you can create that habit, that you're, you as a parent, it's going to be a receptacle. Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Jean Bereson. I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. We're two child and adolescent psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And today we have a very special guest. We're honored to be joined by Dr. Kevin Simon, the very first Chief Behavioral Officer for the City of Boston. Yay. It's about time, you know? And a good pick as well. On today's show, Dr. Simon is going to help us learn more about childhood anxiety. More on that in a bit. But first, welcome, Kevin. It's great to have you here. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Gene or Dr. Barrasson. We've it's, known each other. We've I known know. each other for a long time. So we don't have to be formal. <laughs> got it, got it. No, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here um, and to engage the audience. Um, so thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. and. And in addition to the newer role as Chief Behavioral Health Officer, Dr. Simon is also an attending psychiatrist at Boston Children's and instructor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, a Commonwealth Fund Fellow in Health Policy at Harvard, and the Medical Director of Wayside Youth and Family Support Network. Clinically, he practices as a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist and addiction medicine specialist, caring for youth, young adults, and families at Boston Children's Hospital. It is my hope today that in this conversation, we'll learn a little bit more about the work for the city of Boston. Um, but before we launch into that, can you tell us a little bit about how you got here? You know, what got you interested in psychiatry and working with youth and families? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the question. And I guess in, in theory, I should start uh, with my own family. Um, and so for those who don't know, some I'm really from Brooklyn, New York, son of Haitian immigrants, um, and my dad. Reverend Moclair Simon. He was the first um, Black or African-American uh, deacon in Archdiocese uh, in Brooklyn. And so very early, I got exposure to ideas and concepts related to whole person health, uh, mental health, psychological health, kind of seeing him engage with people. So that's, I'd say the first inkling uh, was actually uh, from home. Um, but then, you know, more traditionally going through school and, and eventually medical school, psychiatry was the field that required us to think holistically about a patient's life because it couldn't just be, unlike potentially some other organs, you know, you can't just say, okay, well, how's your mind today? And not ask about school, family, relationships, how it is that you're eating, how did you travel to where you are? Um, so psychiatry um, was a field that, that most interested me. And then, you know, when you're in our field, you recognize, oh, even though we start off with adult training, most of the conditions we, we help with start off in adolescence. Uh, so recognize that I needed 
um, training with adolescents. So I, I did my adult training at Morehouse School of Medicine. That's uh, in Atlanta, trained at Grady. Um, then came to Boston Children's to do child psychiatry. Um, but you realize when you engage with families, you might say, you know, you should walk 30 minutes a day. Or you should do some some behavioral activity. And then you realize, wait a minute, that family doesn't even have the opportunity to engage in that behavioral activity because of a zoning restriction. And so you realize how much policy actually implicates uh, the kind of life that people can lead. So then policy became an interest of mine. I try now to fuse all those together. And it, yes, uh, Mayor Wu and Dr. Ojukutu, who's the commissioner for the public health, um, executive commissioner for the public health department, thought about behavioral health and recognized the growing demand in our city, let alone uh, in the nation. And I was fortunate to, to be in a position to have experiences in a multitude of um, domains. Wow, that's awesome. We're, we're lucky to have you. Yeah, and uh, welcome to Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm showing Kevin a, a poster, a postcard that I have up on my on my shelf about Brooklyn. I have a lot of family from Brooklyn. So, in turning to our topic for today, maybe we can start talking a little bit about anxiety in kids. Um, uh, it's a topic on everyone's mind. You know, um, some feelings of anxiety are common in young people, and in fact. A little bit of anxiety improves performance, uh, but when it gets excessive, kids as well as adults get into trouble. And there's a lot going on in kids' lives today, developmentally, socially, politically. There are a lot of worries and concerns and challenges they face. But looking looking at the data that the uh, CDC, that is the Center for Disease Control, the trending data, that is the Youth Risk Behavior Survey that they looked at, which is given to ninth through 12th graders, uh, from 2011 to 21, was really worrisome. I mean, it shows that that uh, rates of anxiety are going up in kids. And uh, we all see patients here, too, at Mass General. And, you know, Kevin, have you seen an upward trend in the anxiety of the patients and families that you work with? Short answer is yes. Um, as um, uh, Khadija mentioned, I, I primarily operate through the ASAP program at, at Children's, but I still do uh, cover our emergency room. And I can't say that certainly over the pandemic, but even, it was occurring even pre-pandemic. There definitely has been an uptick in terms of the number of youth who show up um, with behavioral health concerns. And, and of concerns, the most common one is anxiety. Um, and so, you know, to your point, Anxiety actually is a normal, it is a normal feeling we should experience, right? I, I get anxious that I'm coming on this podcast and, oh my gosh, how am I going to sound, right? Like there, there is some normalcy to um, anxiousness, but seemingly a lot more kids are experiencing a higher level that becomes so distressing that they're not really functioning, you know, sometimes can't go to school. I've had certainly seen youth been absent from school out of again, fear for quite some time. So so I do want to hear Khadija, uh, but the, the answer would be that, yes, I have seen an uptick in the number of youth who present uh, to our clinic and, and as well as just to our emergency room. And I would say in addition to that, absolutely. And some some to some degree, 
you know, I'm still seeing social anxiety. I'm still seeing generalized anxiety, but some of the themes have also changed a bit. Like there's increasingly, it seems like more concern about safety and violence, you know, with all of the, the tragedy that's going on around us, you know, worries about their future and, and will there be a planet here that's going to be sustainable for them with respect to climate change. Um, and so I see a little bit that the themes are changing, but the anxiety itself, and, and like you said, it, it, pre it predates the pandemic, but it just seems to be continuing to worsen. I, I agree. I, I think, you know, for example, more uh, young people uh, middle school through college that I've seen are concerned about, you know, the world that they're inheriting. You know, they're, they're, they're much more, I mean, I, I don't have a single conversation that doesn't talk about Black Lives Matter, about racism, about disparities in, 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 in accessing care. And will the economy allow me to kind of have a family, have a home, have a safe place to live? You know, I mean, especially for 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 low income people and for those people of color who live in communities where the water, the air are, are just not taken care of. Um, it affects, in my view, a lot of kids. If I were a kid today, I, I'd be worried about what I'm inheriting. No, you, you know, Gene, uh, as you say that uh, and, and you mentioned racism, uh, something that I have experience is a number of families where there's um, interracial like adoption or interracial fostering. Um, and vividly in my mind, I, there's two families where the the sons, you know, between six and eight, and son is African-American, parents are not. And during an urgent call, you know, they're they're telling me that when their kid came from school one occasion and kids came from the park on the other occasion that casually as on their drive home the, the son's revealing um language that was used towards them and the parent really not knowing like how do i respond back and so what i recognize is also a significant amount of parental anxiety in terms of having their son now experiencing the world and what does that mean, right? And, and how is it that I respond? I can't say, oh, well, tell them that will never happen um, or tell them to accept it as normal, right? So as, as you brought that up, it, that, that brought up two salient uh, families in my mind. Well, it's interesting. It's, it's a, oh, go ahead, Khadija, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say it's a tightrope that, that parents who are raising kids of color have to constantly walk around encouraging them and being hopeful, but also, or, and also, you know, preparing them for the world that actually they, they live in and how to strike that balance without instilling fear and, 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 and preventing them from going out and taking risk. Um, it really is a tightrope that we have to walk in, and it, it's incredibly anxiety provoking. We're all anxious, you know, all pa parents and kids, we're all really anxious. But, but I think more than ever, and what we try to do, and the reason the reason we we have these podcasts is to help parents talk with their kids, is is what do you say to them? How do you tell them? How do you inform them that you know uh, uh, to deal? How, how do you how do you help them deal with the realities of life, and how do you help them thrive? It, it's uh, I think this is where the challenge comes because. Uh, in our field, 
um, right? We're, we're trying to contextualize what people are telling us in the context of the environment in which they live in. And it is challenging, right? Because what one person's anxiousness might be another person's, that's, oh, that's just Tuesday. Um, so I think for myself, when I'm encouraging parents that have youth who may be anxious, one thing is to recognize if your youth is anxious, there's a very strong chance that you're going to be anxious. And you got to recognize how you respond is as much about you, the parent, as it is about the youth. And so uh, I'll give an example here. Um, mom with a nine, nine, 10-year-old who consistently gets out their bed and like knocks on the door. Um, I want water. I say, okay, let's get water. 10 minutes later, knocks on the door. Oh, it's so dark in, in my room. And it becomes a habitual thing and that the parent responds. And I gotta tell the parents like, you're accommodating every time <laughs> that they come, you trying to quell your own anxiousness about, well, what is it you're talking about now? Okay, let me solve that now. And I say, while you are accommodating, you're also like giving either positive or negative feedback and you're just building this up. Um, and so in that instance, actually, very neutrally, don't engage and just bring them back to the bed. And when they come back again, neutrally, bring them back to the bed. And eventually you will burst that behavior. Now, broadly, in terms of just responding about anxiousness, um, I, I do try to tell parents that they should create an environment where their son, daughter can regularly know that they're going to engage in some kind of conversation about emotions, feelings, and that if you can create that habit, that you're, you as a parent, it's going to be a receptacle. You don't, you don't want to course correct, just listen to listen. When that issue comes up down the line that you really want them to come to you and talk about and not necessarily go to their, their friend or to, you know, the internet, they would have built that habit of engaging you uh, so that's one of the things I, I, I do encourage parents is to try to actually set, set aside time weekly. It doesn't have to be daily, but weekly where you say, oh, you know, this is just talking about whatever that you want to talk about and making that a normal engagement. Um, it does become the 16-year-old that, oh, yeah, I want to tell mom this or 17-year-old, oh, yeah, I'm going to call my dad. We normally do this. Um, and, it, and it starts really early. Because by the time sometimes they engage a, a, a provider like us and they're bringing up the concern, but they bring up the concern at, you know, 16 and we do our history, we come to realize, oh, yeah, oh, this started actually at five. Okay. So I'm going to pause just because talking a lot. Um, no, this, this is great because I think we talk, like Jean mentioned, so much about the importance of conversation and having them frequently and having them in a way that is normal, that creates the platform for kids to feel comfortable coming to us with anything. Um, I want to go back just a minute to the, the idea of what parents do. And parents, by by far and large, want to do what's best for, for, for their kids. We want to do what's best. We don't want to see our kids struck, suffer. 
you know, we see it often also like in, in school refusal and school refusal is often related to anxiety, but not necessarily, but, you know, parents will see their kids suffering and struggling to go to school. And then we'll say, okay, you don't have to go to school today. We'll, we'll try again tomorrow. And once they have that relief of anxiety, it's really hard for them to not be in reinforced. So then you look up and it's been five days, 10 days, you know, three weeks that they haven't gone to school. And as a parent, you really feel like you're doing what's best because you're relieving your child of suffering, but there are downsides. And so is there such thing as being over accommodating? You know, we, there is a, there is a thing as too much of a good thing, but can we over accommodate? I do think there is. I think that uh, the model that I think uh, I look to in this is um, of kind of a variation of collaborative problem solving is that, you know, when there's something at stake, whether it's some extra time to play a video game or some, or putting off homework or, or not going to school because you're upset about something or having to go to an appointment, what's I think really important is that the parent, I think you're, you're right on target, Kevin, when you say we got to control our own anxiety first so that we can kind of like deal with the child in as calm and collected a state as we can, but find out what their wishes are. They hear what our wishes are, and then it's a process of negotiation. So the accommodation actually becomes a collaborative effort in making it a win-win situation. And I think that could be applied to anxiety, to fears, to all sorts of kinds of situations that we that we uh, deal with at, at, at home and at school and in, in, in the yard and in our spiritual communities everywhere. What do you think, Kevin? Yeah, no, so I, I, I love the fact that you just said collaborative. Um, I'll give a, a personal example that hopefully could be helpful. So I have two kids, one's four going on 24 and the other's 22 months. Uh, the four-year-old, that's my daughter. She really likes, uh, as most kids do, right? She really likes sweets. And she will want to have sweets before other stuff. And so she might say, oh, she, you know, daddy, I really want ice cream. I, say, I know I want ice cream too. Um, but we got to eat dinner. You know, mommy's made dinner. And there might be some frustration that she, ex you know, expresses. And what we'll do collaboratively they say, okay, now I know that there's just more than sweets that she enjoys. She also enjoys that we kind of read at night together. So it's like, if we just say no, that's not really going to be helpful. So it's okay. Hey, if we have this ice cream right now before dinner, what can't we do afterwards? Do you not want to, you know, have mommy and daddy read at night? Do you not want to watch one of the, the there's a, Thing on YouTube, number blocks that she loves. Do you not want to watch number blocks? What's the thing that you don't want to do, but you can have the ice cream right now? Right? And then giving her time to think. Yeah, she's only four. We're going on five. Say, like, well, uh, but you could have the ice cream still, but after dinner and still all those other things. Then it becomes like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, I could eat the, the dinner. Um, but I am providing her the other things that she might have in her blind spots. Um, I think for a lot of parents, when the child is engaging with us and, and we want to provide that immediate answer or solution, yeah, if we, if we pause and, and take a step back or just take a couple of extra seconds uh, and say, okay, 
how else can we both get the thing that we want and work collaboratively, you know, together to, to do that? Um, and, I, and I do encourage a lot of parents to recognize um, the agency that they have as the parent um, within, you know, their household. So, I, I, again, I really love the fact that you said uh, collaborative. So, um it is collaborative, and and I think that I I wish that all parents could do that. Are there some specific things, Kevin? That, that you know, speaking of anxiety, are there some tips that you would offer parents to help their kids manage, cope with, deal with the anxieties that they're facing in everyday life? I know that that's a big question because it's different for a four to five year old than it is for a ten year old from a fifteen year old. But are there some specific things that we as parents, caregivers, teachers, coaches, clergy, talk with our kids about to kind of reassure them? Yeah, so I think it is true that there are different ways and there's different types of uh, forms of anxiety. Uh, but I do think that there are some universal practices that we all could engage in that would be undoubtedly helpful to, to use. So one is positive affirmation to the youth, we can always ask the question of, again, depending on the age, what's the feeling that they're having? And I think there sometimes the tendency suggests that someone shouldn't be having a feeling, right? So you shouldn't feel anxious about this. And it's why I think earlier um, in the episode, I mentioned like anxiety is a, a feeling we all actually should recognize and be able to recognize and understand it. Um, so affirming that your youth is anxious is actually helpful because it makes them feel like, okay, wait a minute. I'm not thinking this out in the wrong way. Okay, so I am anxious. Okay, now that we've agreed and you recognize that I understand it, now let's think about in, in a cognitive behavioral therapeutic kind of way, let's think about do you have evidence to be anxious, right? Let's say it's a um, social anxiousness okay well who's going to be there oh well Jean's going to be there Khadija is going to be there like okay are those your friends Kevin well yes okay has Jean or Khadija ever given reason for you not to feel like they're your friends no okay and you start to actually in a very like grounded kind of way demonstrate that potentially the feeling of anxiousness that they're having doesn't align with like the objective fact of Gene has not been a not good friend to me. And so then hopefully that can help when you ground them in the objective fact that, oh, okay, this is actually not that bad. Or if it's a sporting event or a practice, right? You know, sometimes you don't want to engage in something. Um, it's like, well, okay, you didn't want to engage in it last week. But then you did. How did you feel after that? Oh, you know what? Actually, practice wasn't that bad. So, okay. Remember, you didn't want to engage in it two weeks ago? Yeah. Okay, then how did you feel after that? Okay, it wasn't that bad. So sometimes you have to help them recognize that the feeling is going to come and be present because anxiousness is a normal feeling that all of us have. How we respond to that anxiousness that's where things can uh, deviate. And then also, um, and this is really more therapeutic and, and potentially not as applicable, but sometimes you have to recognize that 
the feelings that we're having and how we're thinking about the anxiousness or the environment, and this is where therapy is helpful, is you can start to actually name the type of feeling we're, we're having or thinking that we're having. Oh, it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not going to fail because this is this is an example. It's like, oh, I'm going to do horrible. Like, wait, oh, how, how do you know that you're going to do horrible? Well, the teacher doesn't like me. Wait, can you think for your teacher? It sounds like you're fortune telling here. And so sometimes you give examples of the words that you're saying. Like, there's no way that I could know that my teacher does or doesn't like me. Right? So I, I do think affirming somebody and, and, and acknowledging that, yes, the anxiousness that you're feeling, you do have. So that way they recognize, yes, okay, yes, I have it. You say yes. So you, you're providing them comfort in knowing that they're not alone in it. And then you can ground them in, is it worthy or, or, or not worthy is the wrong word, but is it more real that your friends, in, in the case of this example, your friends don't like you or that test is really gonna be really, really hard? Um, sounds like you've been studying. It's not, you know, so there's ways to have a fluid conversation anchored in objective truths of the youth that can then help them recognize, oh, wait a minute, okay, I am feeling a little bit nervous, but I still can go through the test or the, the friendship, the practice. And when you go through that enough times, it won't be the thing that causes anxiousness. So what you're doing actually, Kevin, is you're, I think, identifying, validating the feelings, providing reassurance, emphasize, you know, trying to find out what the what the kid is worried about. Friends won't like you, teacher doesn't like you, I'm not good enough. And then using cognitive behavior therapy in real life to kind of correct the the cognitive exaggerations, that is the thoughts that are excessive that are distorted or exaggerated or even catastrophic and helping the kid realize that, that it's, it's, uh, it's not as bad as it, as, as it seems. Right. Khadija, thoughts? I don't have any additional thoughts. Yeah, I think it really is about helping them, like almost like challenging the, the thoughts a little bit in a way that is, you know, warm and kind um, and, and still validating of their fear is their fear, but helping them to, to break it down a little bit. I think that is really, really helpful. Um, and it, and, it's, and it's, it's a delicate balance again, because you want to make sure that you're, you're being validating and you're, and you're not being dismissive or, or condescending, which can be, be challenging when you don't understand. So really taking the time to understand the, 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 where the fear is coming from, right. um, ma managing your body language and your nonverbal you know, communications is really important. Can, can we stay here a little bit as we, we're thinking about like interventions um, and, and think about like, as I'm thinking about like interventions and parental responses, surely we have to think about the differences um, in the background and the life experiences and, and how they factor in. And so I'm gonna get on my soapbox a little bit. And you mentioned it a little bit when you talked about, you know, racism and how that impacts um, kids and families and just their ability to kind of carry out like maybe what our recommendations are. In the field, I think as a whole, we haven't done a great job as it relates to thinking about and factoring in the experiences of, of, of you know, whether it's the experience of racism, whether it's the experiences of living in a place that's not safe where you don't have, you know, safe spaces to walk around or you don't have access or you're in a food desert, you don't have access to healthy food. And as a, as a field, we haven't done a good enough job, I think, you know, taking those things into consideration 
and thinking about how they might impact our patients and our families. And so as we're talking about parental intervention and responses, how do we factor these things in? I mean, as, as a chief behavioral officer of Boston, you're tasked with overseeing a, a city that is tremendously diverse in terms of its populations, um, which also means they have different sources of anxiety. You know, their kids come from different backgrounds. So some kids are, you know, anxious about social issues. Some kids might be anxious about, you know, the community in which they live and violence and gun threats, whereas some kids are anxious about discrimination. And then there's the things that kids are anxious about in general, you know, whether they're going to have a job, you know, climate change. There's no shortage of things that our kids are anxious about. And so then how do we approach it differently, maybe based on the background? Yeah, no, so th th this is a very um, good point that you bring up. And it's not a soapbox. It, it, it's important. Um, I think in terms of thinking about, so in, sorry, like nuance, in the field, this would be the idea of like the cultural formulation, right? Like in theory, some people come from different cultures. And so you're trying to be mindful of that. Yet the reality is cultures, there's many different cultures, even outside of just the ethnic culture. And so, yes, if I engage with a youth who's actively um, incarcerated, but there's certain culture aspects that I have to ask about versus, yes, that's, that's different than someone who's in the community. And uh, so so as, as practitioners, we do have to be very mindful. And I think really it's, it's what our job asks us you have to be just inquisitive about the experience, right? Because the reality is it is impossible for us to move forward and have a complete one-to-one -one racial concordance, ethnic concordance, provider to family, right? Even within families, I, I mentioned there's sometimes interracial um, dynamics. So being open and truly with an inquisitive mind about okay, let me understand or help me understand what it is that you are experiencing is important even intergenerationally in the same family, right? So parent to, to youth, just because you were a parent, you were a youth at some point in time, but it was at a different point in time than your youth now, right? And so it's actually not fair for you to try to compare what occurred sometimes in your past to your youth present. My parents didn't have a TikTok, didn't have an Instagram, didn't have a Facebook. And so in staying in the learning frame, they should be curious about, well, what is this, right? So that way, help me understand, right? All right, it sounds, it, hey, you know, Kev, it, se it seems like you spent a lot of time engaged in social media. If they just ask the question, and I hear this from youth, like, if they just ask me, I tell them. And it's like, so if you just ask the question, be in the learning frame yourself as a parent, you'd be very surprised. Your, your youth likely will give you the, the, the answer about why it might feel important to them about engaging in social media as, as an example. And they also may recognize when things are not actually healthy. And the fact that we ask them if we as parents stay in a, a, a learning frame um, and as, as clinicians stay in a learning frame, you can engage with a person from a completely different background than yourself, but learn something from them that can be helpful for them to think about, okay, how's this shift that I might want to make that might make me feel different about a situation? And I think well, that's so... 
Oh, I was going to say, I think it's just so important because I, I think that cultural sensitivity and that curiosity is so important because it, it's going to be tremendously hard to find providers that look like you for, for all kids and families. And so if we stay, you know, sensitive and curious, you know, we won't tell kids things like, don't worry, you're going to be safe if they live in an unsafe neighborhood. Like it could be so incredibly, you know, again, invalidating and it, tells the kid in the family that you don't understand me, you don't get me, you don't see me. So how can you help me if you don't understand that my community is not safe or I don't eat fresh fruit because I don't have a place where I can get them from. And so those things can be really um, detrimental to the therapeutic relationship and, and cause people to not show up and create a real barrier. So I think it's super important that we think about the things in this way as as, as parents, as caregivers, and as people who are anyone who's supporting a young child or young person. You know, Jean, before you jump in, what what we're talking about here um, in the therapeutic sense, and, and I think um, more popularized by by one of our colleagues who who is no longer here, Dr. Paul Farmer, right? This idea of accompaniment, right? Like, as a as a therapist, sometimes it's the fact that I'm present with you, experiencing the the the, the existence that you're having. And that you're not doing it alone, at least in the time that we're engaged, and that I may actually not be able to figure out the problem, but you're not at least figuring out by yourself. And so, when I'm wearing the the, the therapy hat, um, really do acknowledge to youth and and to parents. I mean, I have all the answers, but at least we'll be working together to figure it out. Um, and I think that that's what we're talking about here in terms of with differences in um, social dem demographic, differences, economics. But, but can you be, as a, as a provider, um, actually just uh, like humble enough to recognize you don't, have all, you don't have all the answers? So I'd like to go back to your uh, notion of being in the learning mode and uh, the importance of uh, mental health education, particularly for parents. Um, so in your role for the city of Boston or your role for the Wayside Youth and Family, how are you approaching mental health education, which is so important, you know, for parents, kids, teachers, uh, youth workers, even clinicians? And, 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 and second, what barriers do you see to mental health education? Yeah, so, so these are um, good questions. Um, I think in terms of the the barriers. So one, accessing information about mental health that is accurate, because uh, there's a lot of um, inaccurate information that can be shared very widely and, and, and quickly. Um, I think to Khadija's point about cultural nuances, right? Sometimes we'll have very good information, yet it is just not even translated in the appropriate language. And so here it is, I have great information. And, and I'll actually, I'll give you an example here. So several weeks ago, uh, I spoke to Special Education Parent Advocacy Council, SPEDPAC, uh, of the Boston Public Schools System. And it was awesome because we were talking about ADHD and, and neurodevelopmental conditions. And there's over 200 engaged parents and when we when I logged in, they had twelve different rooms 
And so it was like, if you spoke Haitian Creole, the translator's in room one. If you spoke Cape Verdean Creole, room two. Spanish room three. Chinese room, right? So they thought in advance, we know we have a diverse population of parents. They're not all primarily English speakers. We're gonna make sure that what, however you're coming, that Dr. Simon knows that he can't talk super fast because we have translators that are translating in real time. So in terms of the information, ensuring that we really do cater to the significant amounts of diversity of, of patient populations, families that we have, and ensuring that that information is accessible to everybody. Um, another thing that I would say is in terms of thinking at the, the city level, uh, one of the things that, that we will be doing is intentionally having what would be called a behavioral health communication campaign to make sure that in a lot of different languages, on a lot of different platforms, right, podcasts included, that as many people as possible hear the appropriate information, the right information uh, that can be helpful for them at the right time. Because there's a lot of information to, to be shared. And I think when I've talked with a lot of community organizations, churches, individual person, they, they do share that they really want to have more information because they don't, they might know that their youth, something's different. Or the coach knows, I got a kid on my team, but I don't know how to really engage with them. And so for us, the, the communication campaign is really about how can we educate and, and increase the understanding of behavioral health symptomology um, so that way, just as much as people recognize, you know, this person, I need to be doing CPR. We become a city that the general person can recognize somebody that is experiencing a behavioral health challenge and, and feel more comfortable recognizing like, okay, wait a minute, here's this number that you should call. So, so that's that's part of the education on a public health level um, that, that we're thinking about. So, you know, you are obviously incredibly passionate about supporting youth mental health on large scale. And we wanted to really thank you for, for thinking with us and talking with us about, you know, anxiety as it relates to young people and how we, in our role as parents, um, and also for sharing, you know, what you see as the potential barriers and the opportunities that exist for uh, mental health education, because we feel incredibly strongly that education plays a huge role in, in, in the way of addressing youth mental health. Um, is there anything that we have not touched upon that you think is really important for us to not close out before we do? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I recognize that this reaches a very wide audience, even those outside of the greater Boston area. Um, I think the fact that you're a parent, a loved one, a caregiver who's listening to this, kudos to you because you are actively doing the work of trying to understand how to better yourself or potentially the help of uh, a youth or someone else. Um, and, you know, hopefully uh, you all invite me back and we can talk about some other topics. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure having you here today. Um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, we'll see you back on the third Thursday of next month. Uh, if you like what you've heard, send us a review, ask us more questions. We'll we'll try to get them answered. And Kevin, we certainly will have you back. I mean, this is we've got so much more to talk about in terms of education, awareness, uh, 
all, all, mental health is such a big field. Uh, so as we as we say at the end, uh, we hope that our conversation will help you have yours. I'm Gene Baresson. And I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. Until next time. Your parent, when I'm talking to you, like, you literally have a different parent than your sibling because they had them at a different time, at a different place, and they're in their own, um, you know, development. You, you literally have different parents. And I say that to, to parents. I'm like, yes, I know they're twins, but um, they actually have different lived experiences. It was such a pleasure. Such an age group. Like I've heard people say, like, I don't know this parent. I don't know this mom. Like, <laughs> no. Not the mom that I had. Like you hear it all the time. Yes. Gap. My son, my older one, tries to accuse me of such, but I tell him that's not true. <laughs>